You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. The Sewer Show. Squatters and unwaged airwaves. Presenting views, news and interviews from the Centrelink queues. Information on your squatting, legal and other rights. Troublemaking news from around the world. Coming at you every Friday between 5.30 and 6.30pm on 3CR. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hello, Hi, Kevin. And how are you doing? Back, Good. Back for our second show. Back after a whole month. Back no. on the unemployed workers' fight back. Just taken up, uh, up after um, the Friday rave with Jacob, um, as always, uh, doing a great job. So, um, what are we talking about this week, Anne? What's the well, what's I, the topic? <laughs> I thought we might talk about the story of money, and it seems like a bit of a topical topic, uh, considering that there's a whole lot of money flying around at the moment. So, so the story of money we're talking about, um, what, how how money is created, like, and, and what what it's for, the origins of currency, and um, <clears throat> you know, it's a funny thing. I I, I have to. Uh, give points to the economists for the way they use language. I just love the way that they can describe things in these really obscure sentences. I have I have actually have one of their sentences here. <laughs> You have a sentence. I have a sentence. What, what, sorry, you have a sentence. What, what did you do? <laughs> oh, no, you have a sentence. I have like a, a, a grammatical sentence. I'd love to. Yeah, I this, thought you were talking about money on a sentence. Like, yeah, my, my mistake. Yeah. Like, yeah, this, this, yeah. Is, this is a sentence sentence Radio. that um, yeah. comes out of modern monetary theory, which, of course, is our favourite kind of macroeconomics, explains all the way the, way the economy works. Uh, but if you sit down and read some of it, uh, it can be a little bit confusing and... Uh, this sentence, once you understand it, Kevin, I have to say it'll change your life. So let, yeah, me, okay. let me just read this out. I'm paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, would you believe it that a sovereign government, as the monopoly issuer of a non-convertible fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world, is never fiscally constrained? How about that? Translation, please. <laughs> it's gobbledygook. And to get into this sentence, to start unravelling it a little bit, I thought we might start with the story of money because the story of money uh, will get us into some of this sentence, which is actually about how a monetary system. So modern monetary theory describes monetary systems and there are different kinds. And the one that that sentence describes is the one that is operating in Australia. So you and I, we are standing in it. We are in can, this monetary system. Can you system. repeat that sentence? Because I'd like to digest it again. <laughs> I think I have a grasp on it because, okay, just from a basic point of view, I think uh, I and many other people just understand the monetary system to be 
uh, an evolution of the barter system is, is how people would think about it, a, a system of exchange whereby people can exchange stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. Actually, no, a, the story of money is going to tell us how currency originated and this sentence tells the story of a monetary system. So it's a little bit of a bigger picture yeah. that a sovereign government is the monopoly so, issue of an unreliable so fiat currency in a flexible exchange rate world. <laughs> Just run that sentence by me one more time because I, I half got it, but I need to hear it again. A sovereign government yeah. as the monopoly issuer right. of a non-convertible fiat currency. And in this story, we're going to look at the fiat currency, but not so much the non-convertible part. So fiat currency is is a term we need to unpack and understand. Yep. Okay. So, But a sovereign government, that being the Australian government, is the only... It's the, it gives itself the authority to yep. be the only person. Otherwise, basically, you're counterfeiting. So right. it gives itself the authority to be the monopoly issuer of the fiat currency. Fiat currency being, in our case, the Australian dollar. Exactly. Okay, so the Australian government is the only organisation that can create the Australian dollar. That's is correct. what you're saying. Yeah. That's correct. Right and uh, you wouldn't believe this, but I found a little golden book the other day with this lovely story of money in it. Yeah. And somehow I managed to lose the book, but I did manage to have a read of it before it disappeared. And I think we could listen to the story of money. The story of money. Okay, here we go. Let me tell you a story. This is a story as old as civilization itself. So grab your favourite cuppa, sit back, take a deep breath in and slowly out. Relax and let me tell you the story of money. Once upon a time there was a king. He wasn't much of a king as he didn't have any kingly stuff. He didn't have a crown he didn't have a castle, and he didn't have a red carpet. The king sought out the man in the village said to be best at working metal. The king said, Make me a crown. The man replied, I have no time to make you a crown. I am busy hoeing my garden to feed my family. The king sought out the man in the village said to lay fine stone walls. The king said, Make me a castle. The man replied, I have no time to make you a castle. I am too busy ploughing my fields so my family can eat. The king went on to a man in the village, said to weave fine cloth. The king said, Make me a red carpet. The man replied, I have no time to make you a red carpet. I am too busy tending my goats and sheep so my family may eat. The king went away and thought long and hard about how he might get the stuff he needed to become a proper king. One day the king heard about seven brothers who lived in a village seven leagues away. Each of the brothers was as strong as seven oxen. Each brother was so strong he could uproot a tall oak tree with his bare hands. Each brother could lift a man off the ground using just his thumb and forefinger. Oi. Put me down. The king travelled to the village where lived the seven brothers. Along the way, he stopped by a river bank of clay. The king fashioned some clay into many little balls. He flattened each with his unique thumbprint. When they were dried, he put them in his pocket and travelled on. The king met with the seven brothers and said, You are good strong men, but you all live in hovels. You live on dry bread and sour beer. 
and none of you is married. Join your fortunes to mine, and I will give you a mansion each, and as much fine food and wine as you can stomach, and a pretty maid each for a wife. All you need do is enforce some new rules I have made for the villagers. Uh, sure, boss. Well, I don't think the brothers were paying much attention to that last part. They had already thrown in their lot with the king at the mention of fine food. The seven brothers followed the king back to his village. The king went to the man who was skilled at working metal and said, I will pay you ten rouble doubles to make me a crown. He showed the man a flattened clay ball from his pocket. What need have I for these worthless clay balls, asked the man, said the king. I forgot to mention I have made a new rule. Come year's end, you must pay me ten rouble doubles, or these fine gentlemen here will tear you apart limb from limb. The man shook in his shoes and got to work making the king's crown. The king went to the man known for his fine stonework and said, I will pay you ten rouble doubles to make me a castle. He showed the man a flattened ball of clay from his pocket. What need have I for these worthless clay balls? asked the man. Said the king, I have made a new rule. Come year's end, you must pay me ten of these rouble doubles, or these fine gentlemen will tear you apart with their bare hands. The man quaked in his boots and got to work making the king's castle. The king had a similar conversation with the man who was a fine weaver and who was soon weaving the king a red carpet. And so the king and the seven brothers went around the entire village. And the king paid the villagers rouble doubles to provision the seven brothers with all the fine things he had promised them. When the young women saw how rich these strong men were, there was no shortage of pretty maids willing to become their wives. By the end of the year, the king had a fine crown, a splendid castle, and a plush red carpet. Each villager paid the king ten rouble doubles, which the king put in a bucket of water to dissolve the clay balls. The king had plenty more clay to make as many balls as he wished. The king also made another rule, which stated, no one else might make clay balls to resemble his. If they did, they would be torn limb from limb for counterfeiting the king's unit of account. Many villagers wanted extra work to earn extra rouble doubles. They could foresee a year when some misfortune might befall and they would be unable to earn the ten rouble doubles to pay the king and stay out of trouble. The king happily paid out more rouble doubles than he collected so the villagers might make these savings. And so more often than not, the king was in deficit. The men who were skilled at metalwork and stonework and weaving found they could spend all their time making these fine items. They happily sold their wares for rouble doubles, which they could use to buy food for their families, as well as pay the king. In turn, the villagers happily sold their goods and services to the three men, and so they likewise had rouble doubles to pay the king. And so the king's unit of account became used as a medium of exchange. 
What's more, the king was so happy with all his kingly stuff that he requested the villagers make things that would be of benefit to all. The king paid ruble doubles to villagers to work as doctors and teachers and road builders and scientists and musicians and many other things besides. The village prospered for the monetary system underpinned a diversification of labour. None of the villagers ever thought to use barter, and none ever did, for this is the true story of money. And the king and the villagers lived happily ever after. Money! It's a gas. So that's the story of money, Anne. The story of money. And what I love about it is that it really does give me hope that uh, we can live happily ever after once you understand uh, that the government uh, creates the money or you understand the origins of money. There's, there's quite a bit to unpack from that. There is a fair bit to unpack in that story. And uh, I thought a great person to talk to about it would be one Genghis Osman. Now, you and I met Genghis earlier in the year at the Prosperity Sustainable Prosperity Conference in Adelaide, which was an MMT-based conference looking at what we might do in response to the climate crisis. And he was a very articulate fellow. Oh, he was. He was an artic- He's a great proponent of modern monetary theory. Uh, he actually works as a trade union organiser up there in the Northern Territory. Uh, and I think of Genghis as one of the, uh, as a member of sort of the extended MMT community in Australia. Shall we hear from Genghis then? Let's hear some of that conversation. With me on the line today at Unemployed Workers Fight Back is Genghis Osman. Now, Genghis, you live and work in the Northern Territory. Where are you located today? Yeah, so I'm in Darwin. Somewhere along the line, you got interested in modern monetary theory and, in fact, so interested that you've started a blog based on MMT, our favourite form of macroeconomics here at Unemployed Workers Fight Back. And your blog is called Fighting Fish, and people can find that at jengis.org, J-E-N-G-I-S dot org. And I was having a quick look at it, and there's some really interesting titles on your entries, like Solving Inequality Requires Getting Macro Right. I couldn't agree more. I started to read about modern monetary theory probably about five years ago, um, and I came across another blog by Bill Mitchell, who's a well-known modern monetary theorist. And it answered a lot of questions I had when I studied economics. So I started to read up more and more about it and maybe became somewhat obsessive and discuss it at the uh, dinner table where family members would then ban me from from talking about (laughs) macroeconomics. You know, when you say there were things about economics that you're wondering about that never seemed to get explained. I mean, I can remember even as a kid, I'd walk around and think, how on earth do these bits of paper and these like little round bits of metal, how do they have such power, like can make the difference between someone eats or doesn't eat or has a roof over their head? 
yeah, I question the same thing, and I'm sure many other people do. What we think of as money is a legal construct. It derives its value through a tax liability. So what that means is when the government mandates that you have to pay so many dollars in the currency that it issues, that generates a demand for that currency. And that's how it derives its value. So that's why people want what we call Australian dollars, for example, in Australia. And that's because at some point you're going to have to cough them up or you could end up in big trouble. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So although some people might not pay tax, um, they still have a desire to earn an income in that currency. There's enough people within the society that have a liability placed upon them to generate enough of a demand for that currency. That's like in the story when the king says, by the end of the year, you have to pay me 10 ruble doubles. That's like the tax liability that's being imposed that's driving the desire for the currency. Yeah, that's right. And the British went and colonised parts of Africa where they mandated a tax and they wanted these villages to work. So they put a hut tax on each of their houses and said, well, you have to pay us this much at the end of each month. Otherwise... Will, will kick you out of your house. So that liability then placed a demand for that currency. So those villagers then had to go out and find an income. And the only way they could get that income was from uh, the colonizers' spending. So the story we just heard might sound like a fairy tale, but there's actually some historical moments when it's very clear that this is the way the currency is created. The currency is in fact a unit of account, so it's a measurement. Yeah, you can think of currency as a means to measure what it is we produce in the same way that you use metres and kilometres to measure distance. So you can't ever run out of the unit, but you can run out of the real resources. It's like a centimetre or a kilogram or something. You can, you'd can, you never have somebody weighing out lollies and going, oh, I can't weigh out any more lollies because I've just run out of grams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess the difference between a user and an issuer is that a user can, can run out of the currency, but an issuer never can. So we're talking about taxation, Anne, and mm-hmm. the impression that I and a lot of other people have is that taxation pays for government spending. Um, that seems to be the, you know, that, what do you pay tax on because that's what you know your tax pays for this and the other thing. What I'm learning more and more is that that's not what tax is for at all. Not at all. And what, what we're understanding from the story and also from the system is that uh, it's not um, – taxation is used – Primarily, a very important use of taxation is to enforce the currency. So the the government, the Australian government, which which issues Australian dollars, then charges Australia a taxation in Australian dollars only. A bit like your seven brothers in the um, in the uh, uh, fairy tale. It's a uh, you need to enforce your currency, and the taxation department, the ATO, enforces the currency on the population. Otherwise, we could trade in whatever we wanted to. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about the origin of money story by modern monetary, as they explain it um, in modern monetary theory, is that the word money gets used for so many different things. It gets used, people think of it as a physical thing, but as you're describing, it's actually a legal construct. And that legal construct is saying, 
we're going to have this unit of account. The unit of account is in dollars and you've got to have these dollars because you're going to have to pay us in tax. So that whole legal story is something that's an abstract thing. It's not a physical thing. It's and a, that's why the government can never run out of it. It's a, it's a system of counting as opposed to uh, a physical thing. <laughs> that's a nice way of uh, actually summarising it. And, you know, uh, we do use that word money to mean different things. So we use money to mean cash, which is really just the, you know, the coins and the notes that we have in our wallets. They're just the tokens that represent the currency. And in fact, uh, one of the things that blew me away about MMT was when they described that of all the money things that are circulating around in the economy, so for example, including bank deposits, only 5% of that is in the physical things. 5% of that is cash. But the real power and value of money is not in those notes and coins, because they're obviously worthless. The real power and value of money is in the ability of the government, the sovereign issuer of the currency, to uh, make this unit of account required as a tax liability. So, if you if you want to if you want to, you have to deal in Australian dollars because you are going to be taxed in Australian dollars. Absolutely. And therefore, you you can't use gold or US dollars or some sort of barter system. It's yes. a, it's a it's a way of enforcing the currency upon the population to use it. Here's here's a currency, and by the way, we're going to tax tax you um, in the same currency, so you better have some of it. That's right. And it just so happens that the currency is uh, really useful for using in markets, as we'll see in the story coming up. You know what? And uh, just off, with the ATO, you've you got your seven brothers there. They sound, sound, sound tame in comparison to the ATO <laughs> and some of the stories I've heard from them. So anyway, we'll continue with um, your discussion with Jengus uh, because it's interesting. I think what the story also reveals is... What I've heard the modern monetary economists call the capacities of the state, the power of the state to be the issuer of the money. Yeah, that's correct. It issues the Australian dollar. It's where the Australian dollar comes from. So there'll be a budget where they will allocate X amount of dollars to spend per year. So when it spends, there is an authorisation through Parliament um, and then there's an official in Treasury that makes the instruction and the Department of Finance then accounts for that and the Reserve Bank, which is the currency arm, credits the relevant bank account. So what you're describing um, is the institutional process of how money is born. The short of it is it's just some keystrokes on a computer. So if you're, for example, receiving New Start benefits, the government hasn't had to save or tax anyone to try and get the money that appears in your bank account. It is simply decreed that that money goes there. There's no limited pool of savings that um, the federal government draws from. The federal government, as an issuer of a currency, can always spend, regardless of past deficits or surpluses. Um, All it's spending is new dollars. It's a major thing to understand, isn't it, if you're going to understand how the economy works, is to understand the difference between a currency issuer and a currency user and to recognise who's doing what. So in Australia, it would only be the federal government that would be the currency issuer and then the state governments would be currency users and local governments would be currency users and you and me are currency users. And so we sit in a very different relationship from the currency because we can't just wave our wands and, or type on our keyboards and, and start making dollars. 
Yeah, that's right. So the issuer can always spend while the user is limited by its income. So I think it's really important to disabuse the notion that a government is like a household. So we hold lots of metaphors and analogies in our minds that limit what the government is able to do. So having this idea that somehow the government is limited by what it taxes uh, is incorrect because it can always spend beyond that. Right. So the government is very different from a household because a household like you and me in the cafe down the road and, in fact, any large or small business, we have to borrow or we have to earn income before we can spend, whereas the government is spending money into existence. Yeah, that's correct. The government is not like a household, um, the difference being that it issues the Australian dollar and its spending is representative of a socioeconomic agenda that it wants to achieve. Uh, So if it chooses to spend at the top of the income spectrum, then that will enrich those people at the top. But if it chooses to spend towards the bottom, then that will enrich those people at the bottom. And so provided that there are real resources that aren't in use, and that includes unemployed labour, the government can always purchase that. So what matters is not the numbers on the screen, but whether you have real goods and services to purchase. Spending can be unlimited, but what isn't unlimited are the real goods and services. So that's our labour power, the raw materials we have, it's the skills we possess and what we can create. So, for example, in the recent case of the bushfires, where 12 months ahead of the bushfire season we're still living through, when the fireys were asking for more money in order to have more helicopters and more personnel, the excuse that we didn't have enough money was uh, was either ignorance or a lie. Yeah, well, I would think it's an outright lie if you're that high up in Treasury or the Australian government. I think it's ignorant to not understand the way that the monetary system functions. If you have people that are suffering, that are unemployed, that are living in poverty, but you have enough food and you have enough shelter to be able to provide for those people and the economy is not doing its job. So money is spent into existence is, um, is what we're hearing, is that the, the only way currency can be created in this, in this country, the only way Australian dollars can be created in this country is if the government spends them into existence. And that's the basis of the, uh, of, of the, of the financial system, the economic system that that's we have. That's right. And that spending is basically keyboard strokes. Which is a very interesting time to be having this conversation, Anne, because yesterday mm-hmm. there was a couple of keyboard strokes made by the Australian <laughs> government where they magically introduced $17.6 billion into the economy. Where did they get that from? Where did it come from? You know, it's, it's, always, the, uh, it's always the question. And, uh, it's, where's the money coming from? Where's the money coming Where from? Where is indeed. it coming from? They didn't borrow it. They didn't uh, shuffle it from one department to another. <laughs> they instructed the Reserve Bank of Australia to issue $17.6 billion worth of currency. So we know that the government knows that they can do this. That's right. It's it, it's entirely dependent on them as to where they choose to spend it. That's the that's the issue here. Now, if you're unemployed, what they've been doing is saying, "Oh, you don't deserve uh, money because you're you're unemployed, and that's your fault." Um, uh, you can see a skew, a very neoliberal skew, that the way this uh, this government and Labor governments, to a lesser extent, have been operating, where it's it's everything's directed to the top. 
and the and the poor are constantly punished with the uh, with the logic that they can't afford to uh, to pay them more, but they can. Yeah, that's why it's so important to understand how money is created, because then you start to see what are the priorities behind some of these policies. So they're not financially constrained; they're ideologically constrained. It's only because they don't think that certain people uh, need money and that they think other people deserve it more. And strangely enough, when you're in a conservative government like this, the people that they think do deserve it more are generally their mates. It's a, yeah. And, well, it's important to have an understanding of how this is created. Well, I think we need to have a bit of a break. Um, Last weekend, uh, guess what I did? Do tell us. Oh, well, I went to a music festival and I saw, um, it was Golden Plains, and I saw, uh, I was going to play some other music this week, but um, I saw Sam for the Great and she was great. So uh, I think uh, we might have a bit of Sam for the Great. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Butler from Astronomy Class. You're tuned to 3CR on 855am or 3cr.org.au. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Keep community radio alive. Peace. Enjoy. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal. You have to try very hard not to have fun on a push bike. Yarrabug, a show about bikes. Get on your bike. Riding them. Sit on the seat. Fixing them. Put your feet on the pedal. Loving them. And ride all around. Mondays, 10am to 10.30 here on 3CR. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. So money's really just a way of moving those resources around and coordinating those resources. And that's why the the MMT economists describe the story of money as the state provisioning itself and what it's doing is it's moving resources from the private sphere into the public sphere and it just so happens that that moving of resources also works within the private sphere in the form of markets. For a market to exist what it needs is a currency and that comes from the currency issuer. Government spending enables the government to provision itself with labour and raw materials and and then as people earn income they can do other things with that income and spend it amongst each other. That money is just circulating from what the government has initially spent. You know that's one of the other things that 
I found quite amazing was when people said that money predates markets. So money existed before markets did. And we can see that in the story in that money is created by an authority and then it just turns out it's a really great way to facilitate markets. There were early civilizations, Mesopotamia and Kingdom of Summer, I think, and their currency was tied to them harvesting grain. So they would mobilise people to harvest grain so they could feed their populations. So there was no system of barter as such, which is a common story you get. That money evolved out of barter. Um, and as people didn't want to trade and lug around bags of oranges or whole chicken, they decided to create uh, money. But there's no anthropological evidence to suggest that that ever happened. I'm trying to imagine how long someone's lugging their bag of oranges around before they figure out that bartering isn't what they want to be doing. Yeah, it never happened. No. Money was always a creature of the state. So there was always an authority, be it a king or a democratic government, that issued the currency. And yet, uh, apparently, in first-year economics, all the students are still learning that money originated from barter. Um, You get told a very quick story that money evolved from barter, but there's never any specific society or evidence that shows your society that existed like that. Some of the language in economics gets very confusing. When you use the word deficit, it sounds like a bad thing because it's a negative. Yeah, when governments talk about budgets, they often talk about budget deficits. But a budget deficit is someone else's surplus. So as we saw in the story, the king could spend 10 ruble doubles into existence and that meant that one of the villagers had plus 10 ruble doubles in their pocket. So the king had a deficit of 10. The villager had a surplus of 10. So in the Australian current real-world context, when the Australian government says that they have got a deficit of a billion dollars, that means it's invested a billion dollars into the economy as we know it. Yeah, there's a billion dollars in surplus sitting somewhere. And that's just an accounting rule. That has to be true. If the deficit's on the government side of the ledger, it doesn't matter because it can always spend. It doesn't have restriction. Um, it doesn't have to earn an income like you are. So if the government's trying to run a surplus, it's taxing more than it is spending and it is taking dollars out of the system as a whole. So where does Scott Morrison's surplus go? Um, doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, Just somewhere in his head, is that right? In some fantasy of his? There'd be um, a spreadsheet somewhere within Treasury or the Department of Finance that has some numbers on it. A surplus is just what is just the government taxing more than it's spending. Right, so it's just a number. Just a number. If you can always spend regardless of past deficits or surpluses, that concept of saving is nonsensical. So if the government's not earning an income, it's not taxing in order to get revenue... It's taxing in order to give the currency its value. Yeah, it taxes in order to give the currency its value and to remove spending power to create space for it to spend. When it taxes, you have less income to spend, which means you can't purchase as much, which leaves labour and other resources idle so the government can purchase. And it can use that 
to deploy a, a public purpose. So all this talk about surplus, 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 okay, like like it's a good thing, mm-hmm. okay, but you're talking about a government surplus, right? And there's there's a few sectors in the economy. Well, there's the government, there's the government sector, the public sector, and the sorry, the the, the government sector, which is the public sector, and the, then the private the private sector. sector, and that's what we're concentrating money at the moment. And then you have the um, the overseas sector, the external sector. So a government sur- surplus invariably equals a private sector deficit. So if you're running a government a government surplus, you're extracting more currency out of the economy than you're creating. Hence, you have a surplus, okay, which is just an accounting term. It's not real money. It doesn't sit there. There are no fighting future funds. This is all a load of bullshit. <laughs> so what we're talking about is it's just a, I don't know, it's a feel-good um, uh, advertising campaign. So... So the Morrison government's been going for this surplus, and Labor governments have done it as well. And I know that Wayne Swan knows this stuff, and, and it, I just my mind boggles as to why he would bother chasing it. So a government surplus is effectively shrinking the private sector, saying, right, yeah, we're going to shrink and shrink and shrink the private sector, which has been doing effectively for the last, I don't know, five or six years. Mm-hmm. And then right now, the economy's fallen over, right. and they've gone, oh, shit, mm-hmm. we're going to have a recession. And so we need to spend like like we've never spent before and because we don't want to be the government that's sitting over a recession. It, they know that they can knock out billions of dollars when they want to. They just choose not to through an ideology. Right. You know, the way I it helps me to think about this uh, spending and taxing business, which, of course, spending and taxing is what the economists call the fiscal capacities of the government as opposed to the monetary. So it's one of those words that you have to know when you're learning this economic stuff is fiscal capacity is all about spending and taxing. And one of the ways that it helps me to think about what's going on there is to think of running a hot bath. Right, okay. (laughs) So there you are, you run a hot bath, you sit in the bath, it's just at the right temperature, but as you're sitting there, you know, it gets a bit cooler and you're thinking, oh no, I want to make it a bit of a hot bath again. And so maybe you've, you've filled the bath up a little bit too full So a way to make room to put some more hot water in from the tap is you just pick up the plug hole a little bit and you let some water out. And I think of that letting the water out of the bathtub as like taxing. So it actually destroys the money. So taxing is like, this is the thing that blew my mind when I was first learning MMT. It's like taxing destroys money. You can even think that if you were so excited to pay your taxes that you ran down to the ATO office with your bag of cash, like what do you think they would do with that bag of cash? They would just shred it. Well, literally, literally. (laughs) There was, I think it was in Virginia um, uh, before the the US had their own currency. That's what they did. They introduced a system such as this and when the tax was collected, they destroyed it. They physically burnt it in an incinerator. Right. So that really demonstrates that the taxation is not about the government saving money. It's about the government making room to put more water in the bathtub so they can spend. They can turn the hot tap on kind of like the spending. And Except that the bathtub you're describing is is um, is a finite and has a, fi- a finite capacity. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in okay. reality, the, the bath could grow and grow and grow. Yeah. So the analogy does break down at a certain point, but it certainly helps me understand the taxing spending thing of government, which goes back to this idea that the government is nothing like a household. So when you're talking about a government budget and you're talking about the budget deficit, that's just a measure of how much the bathtub level is going up and down. Yeah. Or, yeah, but but the main thing is this this nonsense about government surpluses being a good thing is rubbish. It it's it, any expanding economy 
needs to have uh, needs to run a deficit because if you're expanding your economy, you need more currency. It, it might be through inflation or just growth or population growth, etc. If you need more currency, there's only one organisation that can create currency. That's that's, right. that's the that's that's your government, that's the, right. the Australian government in our case. And, and so they need to um, run deficits to expand the economy. It's mm-hmm. it's productive. And when you talk about expanding the economy. Uh, you know, you're talking about what markets are doing partly and that's why it's so important to understand that the origin of money is not about the um, bartering system within markets. It's actually about the government provisioning itself. And so, you know, the neoliberals would have us believe that the markets are all-powerful and they need the government out of it. And actually it's the reverse. It's the government that The government's the foundation for, the, for foundation. the private sector. That's no, right. Like the, the, the private sector needs the government. Anyway, um, let's hear a couple of station promos and continue this interview. 3C. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Boldness, campaigning for human rights for people with disabilities. Join us every third Wednesday of the month at 6pm on 3CR. The imposition of this tax liability, so an authority saying you better come up with uh, the Australian dollars or the ruble doubles or whatever other kind of currency it is, this creates people who need that currency and so it creates people who want to work for the currency and so all of a sudden it's creating, effectively creating unemployment. So unemployment seems to be very intrinsically linked to a monetary system. Yeah, you have a liability that creates a demand for the currency and then people need a way to obtain that currency. So you put them to work, so they're employed. So unemployment is explained in these two very innocuous little words that have such a huge impact on our understanding and what's happening, which is aggregate demand. Aggregate demand. Yeah, so aggregate demand is a fancy way of saying total spending. Uh, When you look at national accounting, total spending in the economy is made up of government spending, uh, consumption expenditure, exports, and investment. Consumption, what's that? That's just like you and me going to the shop and buying some bread. So it can be buying bread, it's you going to buy a new TV, someone buying a new car. It could also be a business spending, is that right, if a business buys a photocopier, for example? could be. Um, that could also be counted as investment spending. Right. So investment spending, I like to think of as when you spend money either through depleting your savings or borrowing to invest into trying to create an income. You've got consumption, you have investment, you have government spending, and you have exports. So an export is 
when you sell something overseas and there's some very technical sort of currency swaps that happen, the net result is that someone in Australia ends up with an income. And that's considered spending. I actually don't get that. If we're, if we're selling a resource, say um, we're selling a bunch of cattle out of Australia, that's considered spending. When a cattle farmer sells his stock overseas to um, a foreign nation, that foreign country gives that farmer Australian dollars. It's spending from the foreign nation, which makes up national income. Oh, I see. I see. The the person doing the spending there is the person who's external to Australia? Yes. So aggregate spending is really just a jargon term for total spending. So it's the sum of government, consumption expenditure, exports and investment. And you want all that spending in total to be enough to employ the labour force. If you take out the government part of the spending, the rest of it, the consumption, the investment, the exports, they are rarely going to employ every willing worker. Yeah, that's right, because every worker has a desire to save their currency. So you don't spend all the income you receive, or you try not to. Exports and investment fluctuate depending on the state of a business cycle or whether a firm thinks it will be able to make a profit. If it thinks that there's going to be no demand, it's not going to invest. That's the crux of Keynes' thesis. He said employment is determined through aggregate demand. So by your desire to save, um, you're creating unemployment. Isn't that an amazing insight? Because... I just remember as a kid, you know, you'd open your first bank account and you're so excited when it got up to $10 or whatever it was. And so you just inculcated with this idea that it's the sensible and prudent thing to save. And it would just never have occurred to me that on aggregate what you're doing is actually causing unemployment. So Keynes referred to that as the paradox of thrift. And then I think the paradox is that when people start to become unemployed, then they can't save anymore. So the more you try to save, the more you can't save. Um, If everyone tries to save, then you've got no spending. Um, So saving is good for a currency user, um, but it's the government's job to ensure that spending in total or in aggregate is sufficient to keep everyone gainfully employed. So in a way, the story of money is fairly easy to grasp. If you can grasp the the fairy tale, if you can understand what the king's up to in that story, then you can understand what the Australian government is up to. And I really appreciate you being able to dissect some of that story with us, Genghis. Thank you. It's been great. I think we might need to digest this a bit, uh, Anne. But um, one thing I'm, I'm learning from this is that mm-hmm. um, uh, we've got to bring this back to uh, our listenership, which is the unemployed. And right. one thing which is coming through is that you're talking about aggregate demand mm-hmm. uh, and the labour force is part of that. Uh, and there is a, an absolute capacity for the government to take up the slack of unemployment uh, and have them uh, give them uh, meaningful work. 
but they, yes. but they choose not to. That's be, right. Because so unempl- the rate of unemployment is a choice, as they say. This is the most amazing uh, policy uh, implication of the money story is that you start to understand that uh, unemployment could be at uh, full employment if the government so chose. And what's really amazing about the money story is that it describes how unemployment is created originally, which is uh, through taxation and the creation of currency. And then it describes, well, why is it that we don't have full employment? That's the great conundrum of um, macroeconomics. And it was John Maynard Keynes who answered that, and he said it was aggregate demand, which meant that the total spending of the government and the market was not enough to create full employment. And the only person who can make up that difference, as you say, is the government because they can never run out of Australian dollars. But currently they choose to punish the unemployed as opposed, yes. to, um, uh, as, as opposed to use them. Yes. <sighs> Let's have another, uh, listen to another song. Now, uh, before I played Sampa the Great, and she's great, but she, uh, she has a sister called Mwanji. Now, um, Sampa uh, and Mwanji are from Zambia. Mm-hmm. Um, and currently residing in Melbourne, uh, and talent like this, just living uh, locally, just amazes me. Anyway, so let's hear from uh, Mwanji, uh, Sampa's sister. How nice is that, Anne? Oh. That was like, I'm floating. Yes, uh, and I missed her at the, um, she was on in the morning and I raved on till four or, four or five and I missed her. But, um, yeah, anyway, she lives in Melbourne. making up for it now. in Melbourne. Hey, um, look, that's been interesting about the, the money stuff. I mean, A, uh, the government has a capacity to create as much currency as it, as it needs and it can place it in the economy wherever it wants, including at new staff payments, at welfare payments. So it's choosing this little little uh, cheap shot, one-off $750 payment because it knows it's going to get spent into existence straight away. But because they are just mongrels, they won't give a permanent <laughs> raise to something which is needed. If they if they raised Newstart to a livable standard, it would help the economy. Yeah, instead of this one off seven fifty, you could do two fifty a week if they wanted. But they're mean bastards, and they won't. And guess what? We just found out about talking about mean bastards. <laughs> do tell. Late breaking news. Late breaking news. Apparently, Peter Dutton has um, coronavirus. Oh no, poor Peter. I think he'll be interested in this latest stimulus. He might need to be quarantined. <laughs> Where could to... we put him? <laughs> Back in his little box. Look, it's never nice when somebody gets crooked, but, jeez, if I had to pick one person. Oh, man, oh, man. Ah, dearie me. Well, look, we're coming uh, up to a, a bit of a close on the show, uh, but there's a few things that we need to spread. Yeah, let me just uh, let people know about Modern Money Australia's next forum. So that's going to be this Sunday. And uh, the speaker is George Pantalopoulos, who is from the Newcastle, Newcastle crew, who are all the MMT crowd up there. And he's going to be talking about the international monetary system. So we're broadening it out from the national monetary system into the international. It's going to be really interesting. So that's interesting if you're into that sort of thing. I reckon there are people there just <laughs> listening to this going, "What? Oh, come on!" Just yeah. yeah once once you understand that you could uh, raise new start. Uh, well, if you can understand tomorrow. that you can change the world if you understand that's some right. of the basics of how the economy works. It's, well, then it gets a little bit it exciting. It gets pretty okay, exciting, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So head on down to the Kathleen Syme Library in Carlton Sunday at two thirty to listen to some more modern monetary theory. And don't forget that the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is still going strong, and they're still running their hotline. So if your job active agent is hassling you, you can call 1800 289 848, 1800 289 848 between 10 and 2, Monday to Friday, or just leave a voicemail. Well, that's all very good. That's very good. I'm still, I'm still um, kind of... 
Peter Dutton. He's got coronavirus. <laughs> what is it? COVID nineteen. Like, like we could talk about this for ages. I mean, it's what it shows is that there's more to a society than being a mean, tight ass, mongrel. Well, think about how you really want a well-functioning healthcare system, for example. So why would you say we can't afford decent healthcare? Well, yeah, you know, it's um, uh, it's insane. But but these, well, you know, yeah. Look, we've had, we have to move on because Mafalda's on, uh, up next. Um, it's been lovely, Kevin. It's been, uh, that's our second show, Anne. Do you think we're settling in? I'm enjoying it. Okay, well, um, uh, let's sign off. We'll see. We'll see. Mafalda's coming up next, and we'll see you the second Friday of every month uh, for unemployed workers. For, the second Friday of every month for unemployed workers fight back. Uh, lovely uh, to do the show again, and uh, we're out of here. See you. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin. I was highly pleasured. You looked like you were having fun, and, and it looked very pleasing to you, but I, I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say, it was In the street that has no trees I am the one